Hello and welcome to the Tunnelling Podcast. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Brian Owen. And we are now in the final episode of our three-part mini-series. We have partnered with Mott McDonald for a special, extended look at how a mega-project gets delivered. In the first episode, we were joined by Samma Ali, Michael Saville, David Donald and Mark Leggett to learn what it is that actually goes into making a mega-project and the challenges it faces on its journey from a good idea to spades in the ground. In part two, we were joined by Samma, Michael and Liz Baldwin, who looked at how project owners grapple with the complexity of these schemes, some of the most intricate yet colossal undertakings a society can embark on, and how they complement their own capabilities with industrial support. If you want to pause and listen to those episodes first, please go ahead. But if you are just here for the case studies, listen on. Because in this episode, Mark Leggett returns to talk about London's new Elizabeth line, or as it was known during construction, Crossrail. We are also joined by Colin Lawrence, who is bringing his own experiences from New York's own Metro mega project, Eastside Access. So either go back and learn how we got to this stage, or strap yourself in and get ready for some lessons learned from two of the biggest tunnelling projects in recent times. First up is East Side Access and Colin Lawrence. My name is Colin Lawrence. I'm Mott McDonald's Global Practice Leader for Tunnels, and I'm based here in New York. Colin's role means that no two days are alike, because he covers the whole world as far as tunnelling goes. Making it very exciting but challenging at the same time. His career spans decades and continents. But does that make picking a highlight difficult? No. Colin immediately names the Channel Tunnel, which all listeners should know, the epoch-defining tunnel that pushed the boundaries of subsea engineering to connect England and France. Then the Storbelt Rail Tunnels, which formed a critical part of a fixed link between Copenhagen in Denmark and the European continent. He also points to the Strategic Sewage Disposal Scheme, or SSDS, in Hong Kong which called for major tunnel and cavern engineering, before he noticed a pattern in the work he was assigned. I did find out once you get challenging projects on your CV, you tend to work on challenging projects a lot, but they all really become challenging in their own right. Every tunnel project is challenging, no matter how big or how small. Even micro-tunneling projects are challenging. But then came his move to the US and East Side Access. East Side Access was certainly one of the most significant challenges we had in when I moved to the US in 1998. East Side Access is a 3.2 kilometer tunneled link that connects a new station on the east side of Manhattan under the East River to the Long Island Railroad in Queens. The tunnels themselves are twin board with a diameter of 6.7 metres through the hard rock beneath New York, which consists of schist, gneiss and granite up to 275 MPA. From an underground construction perspective, the highlight is the station caverns. These two cathedral-like voids are 350 metres long, 30 metres high and 25 metres wide and they sit side by side, beneath the centre of New York. The project proposals date back to the 1950s. 
Remember episode one where we showed how difficult it can be for a project to navigate all of those early hurdles? It's due to open within the next couple of years, but Colin points out that even a 70-year wait isn't record-breaking for a transport mega-project. The Channel Tunnel was proposed around 200 years before it was built, and first attempted over 100 years before the successful scheme. Yeah, we just completed recently after 20 years on that project um, on the program management and construction management uh, services, uh, working embedded with the MTA in New York. The MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. I think one common misconception is that tunnel engineers only design tunnels, they don't do program management. But from the moment Colin was involved, they had made some early improvements, reworking key concepts. There were many concept changes. I mean, the project is over $10 billion. You can imagine there's a lot going on everywhere. But one of the most significant early changes that I was involved with was the uh, excavation of the station caverns. The project required to, to house the stations, uh, there was twin caverns directly underneath Grand Central Terminal and the, the famous MetLife building, it used to be called the Pan Am building, which you might have seen on many movies. We were directly underneath those structures. It wasn't to the side, it was, it was actually underneath. Those underground cathedrals that we mentioned earlier. But here Colin is the master of understatement. The scale of that task was, was quite large. In and around that area on the surface, you had a lot of high-rise buildings, headquarters of banks, uh, residential, as well as Grand Central itself. And, uh, and so when you're contemplating the initial assumed construction method was for excavation was drill and blast. So here we would be blasting away these large caverns, trying to avoid noise and disruption and, and vibration to the structures immediately above us. So that was a, a, a risk going into looking at that. Drill and blast is an effective and understood tunneling technique for hard rock. Holes are drilled in a carefully designed pattern, packed with explosive resin, then detonated in a careful sequence with millisecond increments between each blast, all to give a careful and controlled excavation. But it is still not ideal for a project under an urban centre. There is a lot more risk engineering. You can only blast at predetermined times and you need to issue warnings to the people above. So when we started looking, well, what does that mean? Well, we can't take the, uh, the blasted rock from out at the surface. We have to take it on rail seven miles north. There was all sorts of constraints that we had to take into account. When you imposed all of that, all of those constraints onto this excavation method and the sequences we would need to go through to excavate the caverns, we were extending the duration of the project significantly by what it, from what had initially been assumed. So we looked very closely at, um, well, how do we do it differently? We used a combination of tunnel boring machine, rock tunnel boring machines, road headers for carefully profiling the arch of the caverns, and then finishing off with some degree of blasting, but to a much lesser extent and without too much energy being put into the ground to, to achieve that. Altogether, this saved two years on the schedule, 
something he attributes to having managers who were specialists. So we brought it back to where it could have been by changing the sequence very early on in, in the concept development. Had we waited, we would have just had an extra two years or maybe we would have had to reset the clock on the design when somebody came up with the exact same idea. Now, that's, it's not, it wasn't necessarily a new combination. It's done around the world. But I think given its location and constraints, it was certainly unique in terms of its application in that location. And I, I think that was a real achievement. And guess what? It was built that way. You know, when I talked to people who, uh, my friends and, and colleagues who worked in and around that area, they didn't even know what was going on underground. And, and I think that's the best testimony you could get for, for something as challenging as that. Tunnelers are a bit unusual. Whereas many disciplines might point to bold, imposing structures as the pinnacle of their profession, the underground construction crowd is pleased when no one knows they've built something, when they have quietly and unobtrusively removed a hassle, solved a problem. Too often you can see program management being about, well, what progress have we had? Are we, are, do we have the documentation right? Uh, is the quality checks and balances in place? But actually, when I talk about the granularity, having an understanding of the specialisms that drive all of that is, is very vital. And that, that certainly on Eastside Access, we had that very much the breadth and depth of the project uh, requirements. Having worked on a lot of projects, large projects, I don't think there's anything uniform about one project to another. I, I think in my mind, every organization is bespoke to the the, the complexity of that project and, and what's required. But I would say the early focus that was placed by the project team on actually planning for that for the project, looking at very closely at contract packaging. Colin says it's not just about having a general schedule of the project and having a set number of years to finish it. It's always in the detail and it's really focusing early on that detail that level of granularity to prove the actual durations, timeframes, interfaces, so that you can actually create your success as, as the project unfolds. When do you discover project complexity? Do you discover it halfway in or do you discover it at the beginning? And how you deal with that complexity as it arises is the key to being successful. What was unique on Eastside Access to me we started out, we had something like 70 plus contract packages and including the railroad force account work. So that, that's, that's quite intricate. And when you start to look at the interfaces of each and every one of those packages, you start to see a different picture in terms of, are they in the right location? Are we doing them at the right time? Do they have enough duration? Are they too early or too late? Are they overlapping in the same locations? You, you get to that level of detail very early on before you've even done the detailed design. And that allows you to s structure the design packages in a way that's not going to end up being changed later on when somebody discovers there's a conflict. In other words, avoiding abortive design is the aim. Currently, the project is in fit-out and commissioning, with a targeted opening date in 2022. But what is the feeling around this project? It is, of course, behind its original schedule. 
but so much has changed since then. Well, there's a deeper philosophical discussion on um, what it should have been versus what it is in terms of time frame and budget. But uh, that project has been impacted by a lot of things through that time frame. You know, the concept work started in the end of 1990s. We've seen 9-11, we've seen Hurricanes Irene and Hurricane Sandy. We've seen major power outages in the region. We've seen funding breaks. Not just the project, but the entire world has changed and changed again since the start of Eastside Access. You see this with all mega projects. Everyone's an expert when the first price gets announced and then you're held to it. But what was the first price based on? What was the first duration based on? You hadn't developed anything. But, and again, it's, it's, it's the eternal discussion of uh, what should a project cost? Well, how do you know until you've actually developed all the details? It can't be based on length of tunnels. We had a, a plate of spaghetti effectively underneath Manhattan. We went from two tunnels to eight tunnels to twin caverns. You can imagine that unfolding underneath uh, Manhattan. How can you say it's by length? You know, it's not, it's not an A to B tunnel. It's a very complicated underground construction. So project complexity doesn't seem to appear in some of the initial pricing of, of many of these projects around the world, I would say. Ultimately, there will be a price that will be paid, but the infrastructure is there effectively forever, taking the burden off Penn Station, providing direct access to commuters working in and around the east side, helping connect to a major terminal. So it's certainly a transit hub that's being created there, fairly unique for New York City. So what price would you put on that, I would ask you. <laughs> now we move to London, and another project that is in the systems and fit-out phase. It is a tunnel project that became the pride of the construction industry, the biggest infrastructure project in Europe, and once a darling for politicians seeking a photo opportunity. But while the capital construction works were delivered on time, it has since fallen behind schedule and gone over budget. But again, from an engineering side, it has been a stunning achievement. Here's Mark Leggett, who spoke to us in episode one about the political struggles a project needs to overcome before it is approved. Crossrail is fundamentally an east-west railway underneath central London. It does connect and it connects out to the west of London. Uh, go, you know, you could, I think you can get trains all the way up to Reading. And then the east, it goes down to Abbeywood and in, uh, all the way out to Shenfield in the east. So it, it runs on the surface lines, east and west, and then goes into central London where there's underground stations and tunnels. There's a significant quantity of tunnels. So it runs right underneath central London uh, from Paddington through Bond Street, Tottenham Court Road, Farringdon, Liverpool Street, and then out into the East End at Whitechapel, a station at Canary Wharf at the Isle of Dogs, one at Woolwich out in the East. A hugely significant piece of infrastructure that has gripped the media for a decade. The key part, and I would say that being a tunneler, and I would say it because I was responsible for the alignment of the central section and the eastern section, the key part is the underground section in the centre. And like East Side Access, it was a long time coming. Initially conceived in the 1940s, named Crossrail in the 1970s, 
failed to get approval in the 1990s, and then became the scheme we know today in the 2000s. 21 kilometres of twin bore tunnels with a 6.2 metre finish diameter straight through the spaghetti that is London's underground network. The one thing I would say about Crossrail is, well, I think it's a huge success story. Obviously, it's running late and obviously people talk about its budget. I actually, and I may be biased but because of my history on the project, but I, I'm, I'm generally not that biased about projects. I think it's a huge success story. Why? It was really well put together at Hybrid Bill. It had a really good business case. I think the early design and delivery was very good. Um, they had a great budget, really robust budget. You can look back into 2010, 2011, they had a really robust budget. And actually, it's been a huge success, you know, in, in engineering construction terms and tunneling terms, huge success. You know, they had lots of challenges, but they haven't had any major issues. The tunneling has been very successful. The stations are amazing if you've seen them on, seen the pictures on online. Uh, and it will be a huge, hugely successful transport project. I think the huge complexity comes from, you know, it's, it's the first truly digital railway. It's got huge integration issues with London Underground, Network Rail. It's hugely complex. It's the first major railway in London Underground for many years. I mean, we've done Northern Line Extension, but Crossrail is a completely different scale. And despite its current difficulties, it will be, we'll look back when it's opened and go, that's fantastic. Engineering aside, Mark thinks that there are lessons to be learned from Crossrail. A key one is the delivery strategy. I think if there's one thing I would do differently on, on, on Crossrail is think, did that delivery strategy really understand enough technically? You know, or was it focused too heavily on program and milestones and PMO? Because that, I think, is the nub of the matter. When I look at projects like Crossrail, Berlin, Jubilee Line, that I think is the difference that I need to, we need needs to be brought. When you look at you know the the extension of the testing commissioning on Crossrail, the length of fitting out time is is did they understand enough about this push and pull? By push and pull, Mark is referring to the transition from the predominantly civils phase of the project, the push, and into the systems work, the pull. He believes that this is the crux of everything, where so many major projects fall behind schedule. David Donald from episode one spoke more about programme, but here is Mark's take. I think you really need to understand integration and operations. And for me, it's that I describe it like this, and I'd have a drawing of it, but we're on audio, so you have to picture it. It's the push. There's this massive push of the civil engineering we all love, and I'm a tunneler, so I love the push of the civil engineering. And then there's this pull of the systems into operation, and there's an overlap between those two, which is often dynamic testing, testing commissioning. And it's, you know, Terminal 5, classic example of where that went wrong. <laughs> you know, day it opened. Did it work? No. Brandenburg, awful. Crossrail suffered a bit to some extent with some of that, uh, and, and I and there are probably other projects around the world. Scottish Parliament was the one that really suffered with, with all these things, and we need to understand how to bring those two things together. 
And Mark says that there needs to be a competent delivery partner to oversee this, or it all falls apart. But we need a different model. We need to understand, as a delivery partner, you need to understand technical requirements and design really clearly because these projects are complex. And if you don't understand that, you can't manage it. He thinks the delivery partner of today is probably very different to the delivery partner of yesterday. Like Eastside Access, Crossrail benefited from some early changes to concept. Well, one of the key things we did was, well, in the 1990s, the scheme for the stations was they had some pretty large, they called them beehives, actually. They're like, an, uh, you know, the old sort of curvy beehive, as you can imagine, this sort of upturned pot. So these circulation halls built underground, enormous structures. They were probably three to four storeys high. A grand solution, which Mark also described as cathedral-like. One of the key things we did when we, do, when we started on Crossrail was we, we took a step back and looked at all the station designs. And we said, there are things that have to go. And that was, that was one of them. They were just too risky, too expensive, too complex. And we rationalised a lot of the station designs. And I think that is what is needed. And Berlin and Scottish Parliament are two examples where this wasn't that guiding mind to say, is this right? Is this appropriate? And projects need that. But as it's the most significant European tunnelling project of the 2010s, what's Mark's highlight? Highlights from Crossrail. Do you remember the BBC's programme, the £15 billion railway? It was great publicity, on a level rarely enjoyed by the infrastructure industry. And I love that piece, threading the eye of the needle at Tottenham Court Road. It's a fantastic piece where they drove the tunneling machine about 800 millimetres above uh, the, the, the running tunnels of the northern line and underneath the escalator at Tottenham Court Road Station. And it's a fantastic piece. And what I love about that, was that was 10 years after we designed that. And it was, for me, it was it's that challenge at Bill. How much design do you need to do for any given piece of it, because you're not doing a lot of design necessarily. But sometimes you need to do a lot. And it was that piece where we had to model it in 3D. We had to be really clear that we were going to make that work. As Crossrail is literally threading the needle through loads of eyes all the way along through London. It goes up and down and it passes all sorts of constraints. And it's really satisfying to then see a BBC programme about something that you've created. That actually, thank goodness, worked. But it was very tight. But again, it worked. And it's there. And Crossrail, delayed again by the pandemic, is scheduled to be completely in service sometime in 2022. The first entirely new metro line to be built under central London in decades. And that's what makes a mega project. Our guests were each advocating for a delivery partner model, but they made it sound like an obvious choice. So I decided to ask Mark a final question. Why a mega project would choose not to portion off some of its responsibilities? And what the thinking is in the industry at the moment around project delivery. Yeah, I don't understand why people would proceed without one. Maybe, maybe no one's said it before. The evidence is there. I think maybe we just need to step back and say, what really? I mean, it's interesting when you look at things like 
Project 13 talks about an integrator. And that implies somebody who's got, you know, it's a competent client, an integrator. But if you, so if your client team, you can have a competent client, but you can employ that competence. But that does imply needing that technical knowledge. And that's where I, you know, I, I just think, why is it not done? I don't know. Just need to, people need to step back and say, what do we really need? In this series, we've learned about the importance of programme, stakeholder engagement, sound engineering and political acumen. We've learned that correctly incentivizing projects is essential, but so too is having the right people promoting the right behaviours in the right places. Yet all this is for nothing without a guiding mind directing the whole. Things cannot be set up in silos and be expected to act in concert. As we said at the start of episode one, these schemes are interventions on a grand scale. Attempts to remake society and the built environment for the better. And we all benefit from success. The Tunnelling Podcast is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Valentine, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Velo Mitrovic and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Script editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And always on time and under budget is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode and miniseries partner, Mott McDonald. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, tunneling.reby.media, and on LinkedIn. <laughs>